You are listening to Marvel's The Pullist. I'm Ryan, a.k.a. Agent M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. And this is our fifth special episode for Marvel's 80th anniversary, where we look at a selection of books for each decade. This month, we are looking at books from the 1980s. What a time. Right? Iran-Contra. Greed was good, according to the (laughs) guy in the car. The Maze uh, and Mets were delighting yeah. people like Ron Richards and John Cirilli yeah. and Joe Casada. Yeah. Was Baywatch in the 80s? Nope. Ah, oh, Ma- Maybe 89, but I don't think so. It counts. <laughs> so that brings up a good point. So what we're doing here is different from our regular episode because we just picked a selection of books across the decade. My initial list was about 10 to 12 yeah. of just different things and i was trying to steer clear of some of the more obvious choices i didn't want to do secret wars we had done fantastic four previously so there was uh, a fantastic four book on my list but i was like "Mm, we Mm -hmm. haven't you know i'm iffy didn't do x-men because on this week in marvel unlimited reading club for the 1980s i sit down with cb sabolsky and we talk about uncanny x-men in particular just we, we really highlight four issues in depth but here I wanted to touch on a couple different things. Some of the creators, I, I knew we had to talk about mm-hmm. Frank Miller, John Byrne. Those were really important to me. I thought about some of the important storylines. So I thought I kind of wanted to reread Squadron Supreme again. Yeah, I've read it like four times already. <laughs> and it's one of those books I just go back to and you find new things that you love about it as you grow older. Yeah. And So Squadron Supreme is in there. Frank Miller, a Daredevil issue is in here. I wanted to talk about graphic novels a little bit. Uh, So Death of Captain Marvel is in here. Uh, We have to talk about Punisher because going into the mid to late 80s into the 90s, it's hard to express how huge Punisher was. So we'll get into that. You know, we didn't have a lot of female-led titles, but in talking about John Byrne, I could also talk about She-Hulk. So we have a She-Hulk book in here. And uh, I want to talk about damage control because it's so friggin' good. That was really interesting to read. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we'll get into to all those, uh, and I'll, and then at the end I'll talk about some other books, and maybe we'll put together a little reading list mm-hmm. of all the books that we, we mm-hmm. talk, you and I bandied back and forth. But we're going to dive in first. We're going to go chronologically to December 29th, 1981. Wow. Little book called Daredevil, issue number 181. This one is a doozy. <laughs> this is probably about the midpoint, roughly the midpoint of Frank Miller's first run on Daredevil, which spans from 165 through 191 with, I think, one or two issues gap. But uh, this one is written and drawn by Frank Miller with colors and finished art by Klaus Janssen, letters by Joe Rosen. It feels very much like a gritty New York crime story. Like I was getting taxi driver Seriously. vibes from yeah. it. Yeah. It's it's really amazing. Like I had so many thoughts on reading these comics. First and foremost, that this is as good as comics get. Yeah. And from there, I started thinking about, I was reading like a piece on visual effects in movies and how there's kind of a tacit popular thought that like since visual effects have gotten better over the years, movies have gotten better. Hmm. And that's obviously 
that's not the case. You know, right. my quality of of these things has been, you know, at the highest level, in, in incredibly high. Uh, and that's what I was thinking with these kind of things. You know, these issues really, you know, as we've gone through the decades, were, were ones that like felt so resident and modern to this day. It was so awesome. This one in particular, like, especially as we get to, to the Fisk stuff in the, in the kind of later half of the book, it's so awesome. Yeah, so this follows Bullseye. Yeah. Bullseye narrates the issue. You follow Bullseye from being in prison, uh, having, you know, already mixed it up with Daredevil. He's been put away, and he's just focused on revenge. Mm-hmm. He needs to get out and kill Daredevil. And I don't think there's enough credit given to how clever Bullseye is and how, you know, that part of his character was built because of the way he orchestrates his prison break and his manipulation Mm -hmm. of people. And, yeah, he is incredibly skilled. He murders people with playing cards with a pill. It's just this guy who is almost like a cat. He's like – Prime to pounce and the way he's drawn and you get really like Frank gets real up close on him and you've got inside you see what's going on and like just that level of tension is so well done. Yeah, I it's just so spectacular and you're he's so fearsome and and there's so much weight to him like you can feel the the kind of drum beat. As he like it gets louder and louder as he gets closer to to his goal. I think Ed Brisson did it real well with Juan yeah. Ferreira yeah. recently when they had him in Old Man. I, absolutely, yeah, that's a, that's a uh, good Old Man Logan. Out. Yeah, um, he was like thinking about it now. I'm like putting like, oh yeah, Ed really channeled him really really well based on like this appearance. Yeah, million percent. And the other thing that I was thinking about when I when, as I was reading this and it is something Matt Rosenberg said. Uh, he was talking about a recent uh, Marvel Creative Retreat, and he was talking about Chip's, you know, new run on Daredevil. Mm-hmm. I think it was he was talking about when he was in the room for the first time, and it just struck me as just kind of cool and funny because he said like literally everyone in that room wants to write Daredevil. He's just one of those characters, and I thought that was so cool, and I completely get it, especially when you read a story like this where we're witnessing like, you know the bricklaying of like one of the greatest Daredevil stories ever, it makes perfect sense, especially from a legacy perspective of like, this is where this character has been. This is the heights that this character has reached. This is the potential for what this character can be. It's so cool. And I, I just love that little kind of insider thing of just like every, everyone loves Daredevil. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and this is the big bullseye versus Electra fight where bullseye kills Electra. And you know, there's that panel of, him stabbing her with her yeah. sigh and how it uh, pokes through but doesn't all the way puncture her her shirt, mm-hmm. which has always, like, freaked me out. Yeah. Like, just, it's so gnarly. And I don't know, maybe I've just seen it reprinted and reproduced and homage. So that one panel in particular, it is, like, a third of a page. It's the side panel, and there's still so much going on on that page. The economy of storytelling that, Frank and Klaus do just to keep the story going. And then, you know, the horrifying next couple of beats of her like stumbling around, Bullseye putting on a just like he puts on a coat, puts on a hat, he follows her, and she's like blood gushing. People around her are like avoiding her. It's a very realistic, terrifying look at 1981 New York City. Right. Uh, and like where you might see someone 
dying <laughs> and and you just like I can't get involved. Right. Like that was the feeling of, of these people. But yeah, it's the panels afterwards. I was like so stunned by how brutal it is, how dark it is. Uh, exactly those those panels you're describing. It was just like this iconic moment happens and it's like, oh, there it is. It's the classic shot. And then you're just like, whoa. Yeah. Whoa. It yeah. is heavy. Yeah. Daredevil is almost a side character in this issue and it's right. still one of the best issues of Daredevil yeah. you'll ever read. Yeah. It is it is incredible uh, and it's heartbreaking and especially by the end it's terrifying where the last lines in the the comic are Bullseye who has been essentially paralyzed. He's yeah. in hospital bed and he says prison couldn't stop me and neither can this prison you've made of my body. My spine is shattered. I can't feel my arms or legs. I can't even talk. But man can I hate I hate you more than ever, and that'll be enough. No matter how many months and years it takes, I'm going to put myself back together, and then I'll come for you again. Just wait. And it's just a close-up of on his, on his eyes. Whoa. Man, yeah. <laughs> 10 issues later, uh, if you read this, you want to – if you don't want to read the whole thing, I would highly suggest go to 191. It's the last Frank Miller uh, Daredevil run until Born Again a couple years later. It's Daredevil playing Russian roulette with Bullseye, and it's a <laughs> deep psychological – it's like it's the other side of the coin of looking at who these characters are. You get really to see who Bullseye is in this issue. That one tells you a lot about uh, Matt in that one, and it's it's great. Nice. Before we jump to our next book, one thing I wanted to point out, which I just found fascinating – can you guess how old Frank Miller was when he did oh, this man. issue of Daredevil? It's gonna I'm hurt. Scared. It's yeah. gonna, it, it's just, it, just what? What? Guess. What? Take just, a guess. No, I can't. Take a guess. I can't. Take get, a guess. I can't boy. get that invested. Twenty-four years no. old. He was just about to turn twenty-five. I. It's. <laughs> it's incredible. That like is, that guy. Yeah. Such a genius. That young blew me away. He was born right around the same time as my mom. Right. And like, wow, what a that is what so a talent bonkers. at that age. Yeah. Oh my. All right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that depressing news aside. <laughs> <laughs> On to our next one. Okay. The first issue that I'm covering here is a Marvel graphic novel. This is from 1982. Is that right? January 12th, 1982. Right. Uh, one this... year I I would turn one year old wow. the day after this. Wow. <laughs> um, this is The Death of Captain Marvel by Jim Starlin. It's colored by Steve Oliff, lettered by James Novak. This for me was the most Starlin Starlin, you know. And again, I kind of had a similar thought as I was reading this story. For those listening, this is Captain Marvel, not the Captain Marvel that we know today. This is first iteration of the character this is really interesting because it's uh as you mentioned it's kind of one of the first forays into graphic novels but it is it is literally our first very first one marvel graphic novel so we did 20 30 of them um over the next couple years and so when we say graphic novel it's a very particular thing and that's why i wanted to bring this up because one yes it it started a line for us, but they weren't traditional comic right. book size. They were larger format. They have prestige covers, you know, like a little bit thicker cardstock. It was a higher quality thing. It was more European size, so it's not the same dimensions. It's a little bit more yeah. square, uh, and man, it's it's something. It's really more about the details than anything else because 
you can so feel the influences of like 1950s space science fiction mm. and like TV serials, things like that on this story, on the aesthetics, on the weapons. Yeah, like if you yeah. look at the like the yes. weapons look like ray guns yes. and stuff like that, which I didn't even put that together. Yeah, it's yeah. so cool. Um, uh, which is awesome. And, and, and again, it's just one of those really cool things that fits you know, beautifully into the multitudes of the muddy Marvel multiverse because, like I was saying, it, it just works. I mean, we get a ton of Marvel superhero action in here. There's a bunch of characters that we know incredibly well that show up uh, at different points throughout. But what was so fun and amazing about this issue for me was it has that kind of 1950s space opera look and, you know, there's like great kind of space politicking and the kind of chain of command type thing happening. But it's really awesome to see how kind of the specter of Thanos kind of casts a shadow over so much of it, which is really awesome. And Cause I, Thanos is, is a character Jim created. Yeah. Whereas... Warlock was created by Stan and Jack. You know, he evolved yeah. through Jim's work. Or, or Captain Marvel was created by, I think, Roy Thomas and Gene Colan, maybe. Right. Thanos came from Jim. And and again, this is just, like, a, such a perfect example of these creators, you know, just myth-making. You know what I mean? They're just, you know, it's stuff that now we look at as just ever-present. But we're, you know, we're literally seeing in a story like this the influence of Thanos on a story where he doesn't even appear that much. It's just more the image of him, the idea of him, the legacy of him. And it's really, really awesome. I love some of the the moments where things get more kind of ethereal and like space weird. Yeah. Uh, it melds in so perfectly. I mean, I'm looking at a few panels where like, it's just framed in like such a classic Marvel way where it's kind of like a skew and we kind of slowly zooming in on Captain Marvel's face and this kind of star field starts to fade over his face and we enter this, his kind of thoughts and his fears. It's so awesome. And I think it speaks to the imagination at hand here. That's something that, you know, given so much of what's going on in the Marvel universe at large today, I mean, we think about Jim Starlin's legacy, but that for me is the definition of him. It's just like this wild, unbelievable imagination that is like uh, really just knows no boundaries in the cosmos. It's, it's really awesome. Also really awesome, one, sweet buns on this dude. Oh, yeah. Everybody's got some sweet buns. <laughs> I'm looking at a panel right here. Oh, yeah. Sweet buns. Uh, but there's, I think, this and, and at least two or three of the other issues that we, we looked at, like the, the movement is so dynamic and kinetic. It's so natural. It's like it's so amazing. It's one thing to be the ideas person, uh, and then it's another thing to be like the executor of those ideas. Mm. And to have both in such like unlimited supply <laughs> like Jim Starlin. It's really amazing. What's really cool and bold and, and, and awesome about this graphic novel story is that we kind of get this this roller coaster ride all the way through. But, you know, at the core of it and what grounds it is that it ultimately becomes a story about Captain Marvel being defeated from the inside. You know, he's like this cosmic superhero, but he ends up dealing with a sickness and illness 
that he can't believe is going to be his doom. It's very Marvel. It's, yeah. you know, like our heroes can do almost anything, but there are things that even they can't defeat. Yeah. And, you know, like, yeah, it, this one was really hard for me to read. Yeah. Um, and there were points in here where I was just like, I was just crying. Yeah. Like when he is resigned to it and then everyone comes to surround him where um, it's Alicia, his mm -hmm. partner, she is talking about how she always imagined he would die in battle, surrounded right. by enemies. And so she's kind of right. relieved that he will die surrounded with her by his side, but surrounded by friends mm -hmm. at home. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was really tough. I'm looking at one page towards the end of the story. It's like so – it somehow taps into this like being in this position in a, in a first-person way that is so impactful. It's so um, It's so emotional and it's kind of surreal in that way that I think a lot of these kind of traumatic life events can be where it's like, how can this be real? How can this be actually happening? And, and he's kind of in his on his deathbed. Um, and then we kind of snap one panel to the next to essentially his first person perspective, looking at everyone, looking at him. And there's this kind of skull, this kind of this embodiment of death that's kind of hanging in front. And we get the kind of words echoing so unfair, so unfair. It's amazing. Yeah. And then as that happens, the word unfair continues to echo when we essentially we see his face uh, similar to what happened before kind of cross over with the, like I said, the specter of Thanos. Amazing. Uh, amazing stuff. Yeah, so glad you picked this one. This was my exposure to Captain Marvel, yeah. you know, because he was he was dead when I when I was a year old. He was already a dead character. I had he wasn't showing up, and we've never, I thankfully brought him back. I don't think we should ever bring him back. This is too powerful a story. Right. So I've never gone back. I've heard people talk about Marvel as a character. They've said Marvel's best story is his death, mm -hmm. um, which I've always found interesting. It's like you know, this book is great, but I, I, he almost like missed potential until right. Jim did this story. Right. And he, it's even pointed out by Al Milgram, who I believe is the editor on that volume. Al is, was long friends with Jim since they were 13 years old. Huh. They worked together. He he inked some of the, the issues that Jim did. Um, but he, he even says, like, yeah, Captain Marvel stuff wasn't that great until Jim came along. <laughs> it was really funny. And so I don't even – I want to, but I also don't know if I want to go back and read the other yeah, sure, stuff. Yeah, sure, sure. This is just – it's perfect. Yeah, it's really it really is. Uh, we got to keep moving. Next book is Squadron Supreme number one. That came out May 28th, 1985. This one is real special. Uh, it is written by Mark Grunewald, pencils by Bob Hall, inks by John Beatty, letters by Janice Chang, and colors by Christy Scheel. I'm really happy with this group of books. Yeah. I don't, this might be my favorite of the list. <laughs> uh, I've read the full Squadron Supreme story like four or five times over the years. it's So the Squadron Supreme showed up sort of as villain group, the Squadron Sinister in the Avengers comics, but there's an alternate reality where you have the Squadron Supreme, a different Earth. It's like 712 or something like mm -hmm. that. And some Avengers got brought over there and they, 
got involved with this world and tried to help out. But there's this big story that happened where the squadron was like kind of manipulated and taken over and this world kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a little preamble to this volume in Defenders. I think it's 112 through 114. If you want to read it, great. You honestly don't need to because this throws you right into the story and where we are so far. It opens with Hyperion trying to stop a satellite from crashing into Earth. You know, tens of thousands of tons of metal and like the way it's described, he's doing his best. And this is your archetypal, you know, super character. Yeah. You know, th- that, that's the whole remit of this group, yeah. right? They, they're they sort of a reflection of and a take on our distinguished competitions, you know, top like main seven superheroes and mm-hmm. then sort of bubbling off from there. As you get further into the story, you see more of those types of characters and how uh, how we reflect those. But Hyperion is, you know, the the guy who came from another planet and, and was raised by good, you know, good people to to be helpful and, and to protect the world. And you have the warrior, you know, princess mm-hmm. from this uh, society who goes out into the larger world to help things and on and on and on. And then what Mark is so brilliant about is he takes that and he spins it into, okay, let's let's look at these characters as if they operated in our world. Mm-hmm. And, he, you know, after basically a horrific series of events, and then where do they go from here? And you have to remember, this is 1985 when this is coming out. We've okay. seen this story now a lot. But at that point, that, that wasn't like a, a trope of right, comics. right. This was on the frontier. It's this, you know, Watchmen is probably starting around the same time as this, Mm -hmm. give Mm -hmm. or take. You know, there are some of this. We're getting more grounded and gritty in comics in general, but this is like full on in. And the Squadron Supreme is here in a world that has fallen apart. Mm. Governments are destroyed. Power is not working. Like, sit back and think about, okay, let's say... Millions of people are dead. Governments are at war. You have no power. You can't get in contact with your family. Like everything is falling apart. And there's a group of 15 superpowered characters who then stand up and say, we caused this. It's up to us to fix it. They announce like we have no more secret identities. This is our fault. We are going to take the next year. We're going to be the power in the world, but we're going to cure every ill. You situate that in what you know of your life and your society. It is a mind-blowing, amazing story. Yeah. And the repercussions of that and the human failings of that story is where this book succeeds so much. Because you have a character like Carperion who is completely idealistic. And it is he's so strong he only sees the ways he can succeed. And then you have a character like Nighthawk who is your caped crusader. Mm-hmm. He is the the guy who is in the shadows, who thinks analytically, who thinks of the worst case scenarios, who is seeing the nightmare that could unfold in this and how those are at odds. And, you know, this issue itself, 
one of the things about it is it's so dense. Yeah. There's so much. Yeah. So many characters is a vast cast, right? The like the last page of this issue, you really get to see how many people are on the squadron at the beginning. It's two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve here. But the cast is even bigger. Yeah. There's there's some members of the team you haven't even seen yet. You get to know in the further issues. It's wild. Like the the moment where they see the the people who are trying to steal food from mm-hmm. the truck because yeah. they haven't eaten in weeks. It's like how do you you have to comprehend that as in terms of like where would you see yourself, and then push yourself back thirty four thirty five years mm-hmm. and like this book was so groundbreaking. Yeah, still. I'm sure there's so much literature on this, but I would love to like have a comics cultural anthropologist talk about like this kind of thing. Cause you know, as these stories get grittier as you know, I'm like, we're going to talk about Punisher number 10 next, which also deals with very kind of these like really grounded real world things. Uh, it's just interesting to, to think about like what the cultural movement was, what the shift was, what made that happen as you know, you, you mentioned it before, you know, Punisher like, became one of the most popular characters you know he's this guy who he's a good guy sometimes bad guy a lot of the time Mm. you know it's really interesting to see that gray area embraced in a bigger and bigger way and those real world issues come in and really zoomed in on in these comics hold hold on yes before you get into punisher i just wanted to point out something i don't know if you know this so so mark grunwald died at the age of 43 heart attack Mm. um that was 1996 so he did this. He was in his early 30s. And this is – he had written one of, the, one of, if not the longest tenure on Captain yep. America. You know, tons of Avengers work. An editor. Like – so Mark Grunewald died at 43 – the age of 43 in 1996. In his will with his wife, he had stated that he wanted his ashes included in the printing of a comic book. Right. So in the 1997 printing of the collection of Squadron Supreme, I think it's the first – it might be the first full collection of it, whatever it was, it was printed in 1997. Mark's ashes were included in the ink printed to make that volume, uh, which wow. is a is a testament to his love. And I'm I'm so glad Marvel let that ha- did right. that. Like right. you know, it's the, comics were his life yeah. in so many ways, and this is such an incredible book. I I really hope anybody listening, if you've not read Squadron Supreme. Keep on with it. Keep Read all 12 issues. Yeah. It's, it's special. Totally. All right. Awesome. Uh, now we go uh, to another, uh, like I was mentioning, a, a grounded, really interesting story that, that has those elements in common with this Squadron Supreme issue. But in that way, it you know, that's the Venn diagram in the middle that it shares. It has these, like, these real world issues at the heart of it. Then the kind of two separate circles are like, this takes place you know, in the streets, in, like, these kind of just, like, abandoned warehouses and things like that in New York City. It's like th- there's, like, three set pieces here. Right. You know, it's yeah. like Frank's little apartment. Yeah. This, uh, you know, building, th- this um, apartment building, mm-hmm. and then a government office. Right. Yeah. It's so cool. It, this this one is, uh, this is Punisher number 10 from, what year is this? Uh, so this came out April 5th, 1988. 88, okay. This issue is written by Mike Barron with pencils by Mr. Will Sportacio. 
inks by Scott Williams, letters by Ken Bruzenak, colors by John Wellington. This is, I mean, Wills Portacio, X-Men legend, recently did an issue of Major X alongside Rob Liefeld, a couple of X-Men stalwarts there. Uh, So it's really cool to go back to, you know, such an early comic, you know, for me personally at least, and see the work done here. I mean, that is so much of this issue for me. And it, it, one, it gets to the heart of the Punisher in, in such an amazing way because he, it, it you know, you can just really define this character of just like brutal means to arguably, but ultimately justified ends. And not only does it do that, but you only get a few pages in before it's very obvious how special Will, Will Sportacio is as an artist. I mean, especially some of the anatomy work that he does, the physiology of some of these characters is just amazing. But I also really love his Punisher specifically because it kind of tapped into a cool element of the character for me, which is like, he's a big dude. He's a really big guy. There's some scenes where he's like standing, talking to people and they're like a foot shorter than him. He's kind of like this really big athletic guy. And I think that's really awesome. I, I just love those little, those classic kind of, calling cards of just like, this is what this character is to any given artist. But this issue is really fascinating because a central focus of the story is kind of like addiction and times abuse at times, like uh, this kind of corporate, there's essentially like things on the street, drugs, etc., over the counter things that are like, uh, essentially you get the, the idea that, um, are, are being pushed on people in an unethical way. Frank taps into that. He's aware of that. There's so many shades of gray in there, which is, you know, everything that you want and expect from a Punisher comic. So it's, But it's cool to see the line that he draws in the sand and where he decides to take this fight. Mohawks. Yeah. Whoa. Not just any mohawk, though. Bald on top plus Mohawk in the back. That's who we're up against in this issue. <laughs> I love this dirtbag. Yeah. He's just like working out in his apartment in like a Speedo. He's so ripped. He's yeah. so big. Yeah. And you talk about Wills, that there's one page where you have them lying. Like you have the guy doing pull-ups mm-hmm. on one half of the, it's like a large vertical panel on one side. And then you have Punisher laying down in the same position on his bed on the other side. And it's, I just I love that the, that split view and the yeah. way you look at those things. Uh, but yeah, he drew some, some sweet brilly <laughs> brilly yeah. dudes. Um, the dude also has like a sweet forge esque stash. Yeah. And I think at one point he definitely was wearing. Maybe I'm just imagining it. And forge is just forever like some sort of drug flashback. <laughs> Like burned into my brain as like guys w- that look like that also have a headband. Because <laughs> in my head, I was like, "This time wore a headband." I'm looking at it now. It, yeah, I don't think he does actually. He may not. Yeah, that's um, great. But it's so cool to to see um, Frank's like very blue collar brand of heroism or anti heroism. I love that so much. Where he's like, he dresses up essentially as like a janitor or something to like get into like his superhero moment. Frank's 
like undercover costume yes. work is so good. <laughs> so so good. He, he, I, I remember it's not a government agency he goes to. He goes to Jehovah's Witness uh, office. Right. He's dressed in a full suit. He's got like, you know, he, he basically does a Clark Kent uh, and he goes there and he pretends to be a federal agent to trick the Jehovah's Witnesses of all people into giving him some information about a, right. a shady dude. Then he dresses up as a plumber. plumber yeah. uh, but not just as a plumber, he's dressed up as a federal agent. He, he's dressed up as the Punisher, as a federal agent, as a plumber. <laughs> he's basically got three costumes on. He's yeah. got his Punisher skull. Then he's got his regular, his like overshirt, and then he's got the work shirt. Yeah. It's so good. <laughs> it's so good. And like I said, I just love that for like because it, it just works amazingly. It's so funny and fun to talk about, but it like also works so well. And it's just so real for the world because, like, Frank Castle isn't, like, a super spy. That's not what he does. He is someone that would just, like, grab some jumpsuit and be like, yeah, this works, whatever. We'll just brazen through it. It's fine. And then, like, you know, he gets through and and, and gets his moment where there's some, like, epic, big kind of, you know, uh, hero panels and stuff. Another sweet bun, buns panel. Look at that Boom. tush. Uh and again, this is one of those that like fits in so amazingly with like the movement, the fight choreography, the feeling that you get when you're reading it is just it's so kinetic and it works so well. I love the little droplets of Daredevil that are put through the story mm. um, that just like they just kind of leave you with enough before he shows up at the end. I think it's just done so well. Like this is an issue that. I'm sure you can think of, I mean, maybe the um, Daredevil 181 that we, we, we read could be like an opposite side of the coin here, but it's just like... There is a literal opposite side of the coin. No there way. is a Daredevil issue. It's, I think there's an editor's note in there. It might be 219, something like that, where it is the story from Daredevil's perspective. That's that was coolest. part of the reason why I chose it, because it's a really interesting story. I, we're not going to talk about the Daredevil side of it, but... It's fast because you get to see how I, – I only had the Punisher issue as right. a kid. I did have this issue. Hmm. Um, but I re- remember there being a Daredevil side to it. I got to go read that literally as soon as we're recording. Yeah. That's so cool. And that's awesome. It works so well because it's just like he pops in at this crucial moment and in very Daredevil fashion. It's just like – it's just the kind of philosophical differences. Like Frank Castle is going to kill this dude and like drop him off a building and daredevil shows up and says like essentially like i know he's a bad guy but you can't do this yeah it's so cool and i think it just so gets to the heart of like those two characters dynamic and, it, and it's awesome i just love that it just builds out the world in such an amazing way because it's just like these guys are around these guys are present and you know we're on the journey with frank and his day and what he's doing and what his perspective is but you know, Daredevil's out there, and he also has, a, you know, a hand to play. Yeah. So awesome. And then they kind of throw down. It, it's really, really great. Things, like, get, you know, ratcheted up even more uh, with the fight. It's so cool. And and I love the, the, the tone that it ends with um, as... That last... His last line there is so dope. Yeah, where he... he um, again, it's just like that blue-collar bruiser of Frank Castle who, you know, Matt Murdock picks up the dude, first, like, knocks him out with, like, one punch, the Mohawk guy, throws him over his shoulder and is, like, getting ready to, to jump away into the night. And he says to, to Frank, if I didn't have to take 
coppersmith in, you and I would have a, a more conclusive discussion, as he puts it, which is so awesome. Um, if everyone acted like you, we'd be living in chaos. Change your ways, Punisher. Dot, dot, dot. Otherwise, we'll meet again somewhere down the line. And Frank just says, fine with me. Which <laughs> is so awesome. Yeah. But uh, th- there's a line at the end. So, like, the bad guy's neighbor yes. is really upset. And Frank, at the end, he's, he just is just like... It's almost like a sitcom ending. You yeah. Know, you could hear, like, the music show up. He's, he has, like, a caption, I think. What does it say? Uh, about about the creeps? Yeah. Well, she like, she doesn't believe him. Like, she's like, oh, she's, like, kind of upset about what happened. She calls him a creep. She's just, you're a creep. You don't know what you're talking about. He's, like, not a bad guy and everything. And he just says, when you get right down to it, most people are creeps. And he has his plumber, like, tool bag and his, like... His jumpsuit slung over his shoulder. Punisher was filmed in front of a live <laughs> yeah, studio yeah. audience. I love it. I screen capped that one for some use at some it, point. It's so good. Yeah. All right. Up next, shifting uh, tonal gears a ton, we go to Sensational She-Hulk number one, which came out January 3rd, 1989. Uh, this one is written and penciled by John Byrne, inks by Bob Wyacek, colors by Glynis Oliver, and letters by John Workman. This run of of Sensational She-Hulk is, I believe, by the end of it, when it finishes in the 90s, is the longest-running female-led title in our Marvel history at the time. Mm -hmm. This also is a fourth-wall-breaking book, you know, before Deadpool comes along and really... I always forget about that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, This leans into it so hard, you only get a couple of instances of it in this issue. This issue sets up sort of, hey... It's the She-Hulk. She's super strong. She's great. Um, but she gets, you know, uh, hypnotized by the circus of crime. It has some of my favorite weird, you know, bizarro villains in all of Marvel comics, the Headmen. <laughs> headmen, including Ruby Thursday, who I just love <laughs> Ruby Thursday so much. She's got a weird red ball head that has like 10 you can like yeah. prehensile right. do things <laughs> and then yeah dr chandra it's like just such a weird crew and and all them they're fascinating uh they're the villains here with the circus of crime but you're getting a sense of who you know she hulk is this comes after you know john byrne ton of work for marvel you know you look at john byrne at the beginning of the decade he finishes out his run on Uncanny X-Men in like 81, 82. It's so fun. It's just a fun issue. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's it's kind of comedy, but it's also, you know, action-packed and superheroes. And we get her origin, you know, all kinds of stuff. As the series goes on, it gets wackier and wackier in a lot of ways. He's on it a good chunk of it. There's some real weird stuff. But it's, it's a super fun issue. I thought it was really neat to highlight this uh i've never read the full run i've read a couple bits and pieces i think i want to read some more of this but yeah john byrne in the 80s it's it's hard to it's hard to quantify like how popular he was uh now because yeah he's he's a legend in in terms of the work he's done but you those his work there like you put his name on something he was selling copies of it it was great this was also like uh, an experiment of sorts to see if they can make a She-Hulk book work because right. it's they had one before and it didn't really work and now she goes on for like five years. So right. kudos, Shulky. Yeah. Um, all right. Last book of the 1980s. Um, did we mention the date on She-Hulk? On She-Hulk one? was January 3rd, 1989. 
And so this one would have this one is damage control number one is our last issue. Two weeks later, January seventeenth, nineteen eighty nine. All right. Okay. This is uh, I'm, I'm going to need you to hold my hand through this one. Okay. Um, <laughs> but it is it was so fun. I didn't I had no idea what to expect. Really? This one, no idea. Great. I love uh, that. I'll name the creative team first. This is Dwayne McDuffie um, writing with pencils by Ernie Colon, inks by Bob Wyacek. Colors by John Wellington, letters by Ed King. I totally had no idea what this story was going to be at all. I mean, Spidey's on the cover, so I was like, okay, is this, is this a Spidey limited series or something? But uh, it was a really interesting, I think, mixture of like almost the kind of Marvel's perspective of like everyday person looking up at the sky and seeing, you know, superhero stuff going on. Um, and uh, it was also, like, really fun and, like, funny and uh, an interesting mix of, of characters in here. I don't know. Could you give some broader context? Yeah. So, first thing, um, the damage control and the, the characters of the company actually appeared one week prior for the first time in the pages of Marvel Comics Presents, mm. issue number 19, which I also thought about dropping some MCP in this list uh, because that came out bi-weekly. I used to buy issues <laughs> at the grocery store. Um, but they show up sort of like quick little intro pilot, and then they get their four-issue limited series. Right. The idea is just to have a humor book, really, right. a humor book grounded in the superhero stuff. But, like, you know, you have S.H.I.E.L.D., and S.H.I.E.L.D. is – involved in the superhero stuff they are this big agency they are getting involved in these big fights and these big battles what is the human perspective on it and how do we make that fun so yeah. it's almost like it's so ahead of its time you know as this what do they call when you have a sitcom it's three camera shoot right this is not the three camera sitcom right. this is handheld you're right. you know you're going out Almost like The Office, yeah. you know, 20 years, 25 years before The Office, where you're following the people who are connected to the giant battles. These the Damage Control is literally the company that cleans up after a superhero fight mm -hmm. in New York City. And they have to deal with the aftermath of that. Yeah. And Dwayne McDuffie, uh, late great Dwayne McDuffie, is – this is it's been tried since. I don't think anyone ever captured the joie de vivre, the the excitement, yeah. the fun, the personality, the like snappiness of what damage control is. Yeah, I think that nails it. And and, and I I knew as I was reading it, like I could, you could just kind of feel that it feels like ahead of its time. You can feel that it's like influential in a really big way but in a way that for me it was kind of hard to articulate but that's exactly it like literally in scenes where like a character is entering you know an office and like just seeing characters are just essentially over his shoulder and like people are talking and things are happening and there's like really idiosyncratic characters all over the place you just feel like you f so feel like you're in that room and like you're part of the conversation it's really like crackling in that way it was so fun yeah and like there's an awareness to itself mm -hmm. and and the characters and there's one of my i like burst out laughing there's a moment where damage control they're fixing something uh, on the ground you got lenny who's the foreman who's doing his stuff and one of his guys picks up this glowing orb 
yeah. and he just picks it up <laughs> and he, he like yeah. he starts growing and changing and he's like oh now I, I'm no longer part of this world I must go off and be something super and he literally flies off yeah. and then he's like uh, and he calls us up he's like we got an origin story <laughs> it I died yeah it's that's so, so funny. good yeah. it's so funny uh, and that that's the tone of the book it's like Great. We they're living in this world, and it gives us. I like that Marvel's connection because Marvel's yeah. was how do if something went wild outside in superheroes, what is our reaction? Yeah, you get the Marvel's perspective. This is the damage control perspective of like, okay, all right, yeah. we got to deal with this, There's and this you got giant, the like the, mech monster. Yeah, all right, like, the comptroller who's trying to like deal with the money side of it. <laughs> You've got. You know, the, the, the gadget guy who's, like, cataloging all the like, all these bits and pieces. And it sounds almost like it'd be real boring, but Dwayne makes it so funny. It's so fast. It goes boom, bada, boom, bada, boom, bada, boom. Yeah. It's a great limited series. It's one of those that I think it's just small pocket in time. You get this book. Dwayne, I think he did a couple more issues. It has never been replicated as, as successfully as it is here. Yeah. yeah. I, I think it's one of Marvel's white whales. To right. like do this That's book again, do it properly. I've heard it bandied about. People want to do a damage control. I don't know that everybody gets it the way yeah. you did. Yeah. That's that. Um, so those were the five books that we chose for six, five, whatever, however many yeah. we chose for the main talk. But we're going to put up a reading list. Mm-hmm. Some of the books that we decided not to do, Fantastic Four 236, which is Terror in a Tiny Town, to- one of Tom Brevoort's top issues of fantastic four it's a it's a john byrne issue but also it's a supersized one has a new stanley jack kirby story in it Mm. Uh, amazing spider-man 229 which uh is 229 and actually 230 which has spider-man versus juggernaut incredible classic Mm. issue yeah masterful really really great marvel tales starring peter porker the spectacular spider ham oh yeah the first appearance of spider ham and captain america (laughs) steve mouser who he uh, there's a great bit in there where he puts his shield on his back, and and Peter and, and Steve know each other like they know their identities. It's mm-hmm. they, they work together, and uh, Peter's like, "How does it? How do you fit that back there and make it look normal?" And then he like puts on this wild zoot suit looking jacket that has the largest shoulder. Uh-huh. He's like, "I have a great tail. <laughs> it's so fun." There's a video, a bunch of video game references in there. Uh, Star Brand number one. I really. Really got close to talking about because it was New Universe, John Romita Jr., Jim Shooter, 1986. Uh, we were talking about all this gritty, gritty reality-based stuff. The entire initial idea of the New Universe was, okay, we're starting a brand new universe, and it is our, it is very much a grounded universe where an event happens and people start showing up with powers and abilities. Right. Unfortunately, the execution wasn't always there. You had uh, Kickers Incorporated, a team of uh, sports. I think they're they're football players who get superpowers. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff in here. Uh, Strike Force Moratory. I think I, I really think you might like this one, Tucker. Nice. Um, it is it is very much a wild card pick because it's not a huge one. It's uh, weird, very very influential. It is basically. Uh, aliens come to Earth, and this group of people volunteers to get superpowers that will kill them in order to. But in 
It will kill them getting these superpowers, but they are tasked with saving the planet. Wow. It is great. It is like I think the tagline is it uh, we who are about to die. Mm. It is wild. It's mm. really good. Cool. Incredible Hulk 340, Hulk versus Wolverine, Peter David, Todd McFarlane. Enough said. And Captain America 367, which was a selfish pick of my own, uh, which was the Magneto just dealing it to Red Skull. <laughs> Makes me happy. Take that, Nazi. Ron Lim, nice. Mark Grunewald, really great stuff. We could have talked about Craven's Last Hunt. Tons and tons of other books. 80s was some really fun stuff. Yeah. 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 yeah this, is, this, is, this is so much fun to, to dive back into. Yeah. Uh, so if you want more 80s, of course... Uh, Twim URC, which has uh, me and CB Spolsky talking about the X Men. And then we'll be back with some 90s. Oh boy. Oh boy. It's going to be. <laughs> I've got pouches. Some ideas. Yeah. All the pouches <laughs> you can handle. Uh, until then, I'm Ryan. I'm Tucker. This is Mark. Your universe.